welcome to That Whole Thing Podcast, exploring what it means to live in wholeness. I'm your host, Ben DeLong. Thanks for joining me today. since my last episode. Uh, it's been a lot going on, a summer vacations, a busy start to the school year, and a new book that came out. Uh, my novel, Becoming Home, came out in August. Um, it's a novel about learning to be comfortable in your own skin, and there's a lot of um, stuff in there about inner child work, self-acceptance, and healing relationships. And um, it's available on Amazon and on sale on my website, bedelong.com. And I'm really excited about the reviews that have been put up for the book. Um, it's really the feedback that I was hoping to see. It was people are getting from the book what I was hoping they would get from it. Um, but for now, uh, to my interview this week, I was invited to an event in New York City a few weeks ago where I got to meet some amazing people, including my guest for this episode, Frank Schaefer. We'll get into the interview. Uh, first, I just want to apologize um, for the audio on my end. Um, it wasn't great in this interview. My microphone started acting up right before it. You can hear me just fine. It's just not the quality I would like it to be. Fortunately, however, Frank's audio is great, and he's the, the important one to hear in this episode. And with that said, here's my interview with Frank Schaefer. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us again on That Whole Thing podcast. I'm thrilled to be joined by Frank Schaefer today and um, got the the delight of, of meeting him recently and we were at a, a event in New York City and just wonderful to, to meet him and listen to him. Um, Frank is a, a New York Times bestselling author of more than a dozen fiction and nonfiction books. He's a survivor of both polio and an evangelical fundamentalist childhood. He's an acclaimed writer who overcame severe dyslexia. He's been a film director for low budget Hollywood features he describes as pretty terrible. He's spoken at dozens of universities, libraries, and museums from the Hammer in LA to Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. And he's been guest commentators on MSNBC and has appeared on many major TV shows from Oprah to the Today Show on 2020. His books include Crazy for God, Keeping, Keeping Faith, a father-son story about love and the United States Marine Corps, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, and today's topic, Faith, Fall in Love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy. But what Frank would, would uh, want you to know most about him and what he'll talk much about today as it pertains to his book is he is a husband to his best friend, Jeannie, and a loving father and grand, uh, grandfather. Um, and I'm sure you'll tell us all about that as it pertains to your book, but um, what, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your story, Frank? Sure. Well, Ben, first, thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure to meet you in New York, uh, I guess a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Um, let me give you a quick thumbnail, which also re reviews a little bit of what I do in the foreword of this book. You know, when I, my editor got in touch with me and she said, you mentioned enough of your past, so we need to know more. Could you please extend the foreword? So in one of the last drafts of the book, I did that, knowing full well that it covered a little bit of the same material I've written about in my memoir, Crazy for God. But uh, the rest of the book is completely different and new material, but let me let me give you a little bit of a sketch of my background. My 
parents, Francis and Edith Schaefer in the 1970s and the 1980s were probably as famous and as well-known as any evangelicals in the world. My dad's books include books like Escape from Reason, The God Who Is There, How Should We Then Live, Whatever Happened to the Human Race. And these were bestsellers on a huge scale. Millions of copies sold worldwide, translated into more than 40 languages, just an insane kind of reach. And of course, the irony is that if you go to the non-evangelical world, you realize what a ghetto it is, because most people walking around out there have never heard of Francis Nita Schaefer unless they do come from an evangelical background, especially today. Dad died in 1984, so time has gone by. But within the evangelical world, his works were really just standard fare. You, you couldn't go to a Christian high school or a Christian college or be homeschooled in anything resembling an evangelical home for the last 20, 30, 40 years without at some point running into either the film series, How Should We Then Live About Art and Culture, or the series about the human life issues, abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, whatever happened to the human race, co-narrated with Dr. Sievert Koop, who then became Ronald Reagan's Surgeon General. My childhood, however, was unrelated to all of this big-time evangelical Christianity. It was spent in a small evangelical mission called Labrie Fellowship, means the shelter, Labrie, in Switzerland, where my parents had located in 1947 after World War II, where they were working with youth in various cities around Europe, reestablishing evangelical missions in places that had been bombed and destroyed by the war. They then stayed, started their own mission, and it was kind of an intentional community and open home. Anybody could come, anybody could stay, mostly folks there who were not evangelicals or Christians, lots of people hitchhiking through Europe, traveling. It was a free place to crash, to use the vernacular of that day. And so my parents actually would have been mistaken at that time as being very progressive, very open. People who were on drugs would stop by. Nobody would get thrown out for taking drugs. Nobody would get thrown out because my parents decided that they were gay or that they had had sex in the woods together. These were mo mostly kids ages, say, 18 into their 20s and 30s, lots of university students. Then when my dad wrote his books, he got discovered by the evangelical leadership. And we had tons of students showing up from places like Wheaton College, Westmont College, Gordon College, Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Billy Graham would visit us, the, the evangelist, and stay. Um, you know, he, he, he had been discovered as someone who could, quote unquote, reach young people in ways other evangelicals were not. And then I got my girlfriend, Jeannie, pregnant when we were 17 and 18. And I was living there in, in a sort of a nepotistic relationship to my dad. I was an artist and trying to do some work in film. But the fact of the matter was once we were a couple and were having a child and then another child and we got married, we were kind of folded into Libri Fellowship, really like a, like a socialist community in the sense that they were taking care of us, free medical, place to live, helping us out. And in that context, I was offered a job by Billy Zioli of Gospel Films, which was a right-wing movie company making evangelical missionary films to produce and help him put together a film series based on my dad's work. And that became How Should We Then Live, which became an international bestseller as a book and also a film series shown in seminars across the country in venues like Madison Square Garden, which we filled by the way, and other places to audiences from 10 to 15 to 20, 25,000 people. It was a huge phenomena across the evangelical world. 
Then that film was shown in basically every evangelical church, literally. They rented films and showed them. And on and on it went. By the time that was done, I was sort of dad's nepotistic sidekick. And one of the things people from evangelical backgrounds know is a lot of folks are folded into family business, as it were, the God business. This happened with Billy Graham and Franklin Graham. It happened with Jerry Falwell and his kids and, and all the rest of it. So it didn't seem abnormal at the time. As, as we traveled, though, I became more and more disenchanted with what we were doing in the sense I was comparing all these high rolling people with private jets mm -hmm. and obviously huge incomes to my very simple life in this mission I'd grown up in. And, you know, very frankly, these people looked like flakes and con artists and liars and thieves, really not like Christian workers associated with the kind of mission work that I had grown up in in Labrie before it became a bigger phenomenon. And I, I got very disenchanted with it and really began to bail. And then once the film series I made with dad, Whatever Happened to the Human Race and C. Everett Koop was picked up by Republican leaders like vice presidential candidate Jack Kemp, who was a congressman, Bob Dole, uh, Ronald Reagan, the Bush family and others using it to bring in evangelical voters. At that point, I was totally wanting to get out of it because it was very ugly, anti-gay, misogynistic, incredibly fundamentalist, uh, huge themes that had never been part of our life in terms of an anti-gay agenda, all kinds of you know things that were just uh, you know anti-art, anti-creativity, afraid of the world, and and I could tell that I had stumbled into a a situation where if I did this for the rest of my life, I would become like these people I was working with. And I really didn't want to do that. So I bailed and promptly went broke in terms of finances, which I talk about in my memoir, Crazy for God, and um, cut together a reel out of the documentaries I had directed and produced for my dad, cut out all what I called the God bits. So it wouldn't give me away. This is pre-Google, took off to Hollywood, uh, got an agent and a series of low budget directing jobs on movies I really didn't like very much, but at least I was in the door thinking I'd make a career out of it. And then it really didn't go anywhere. And I was real lucky that my wife, Jeannie, said, well, why don't you write down a script or write a script based on the kind of stories you tell our children about growing up? And I did. And in fact, that was never made into a movie, but it became my novel Portofino, the name of the town in Italy. And Portofino became an immensely successful book in the quote unquote secular market. It was translated into nine languages. It became a bestseller in the UK and also here in the States. And, and Penguin picked it up and did a new edition. And then I wrote several more novels, Saving Grandma and Zermatt. And that became the Calvin Becker trilogy. And lo and behold, I had a writing career outside of the evangelical market. And this world is so compartmentalized that no, no one in that literary world knew who I was. And if they had known, they wouldn't have cared. In other words, Francis Schaeffer wasn't a big deal there. It, it would have been like, say, being the son of the most famous NASCAR driver. But, you know, if you move out of the NASCAR circle, nobody knows who the drivers are. Nobody cares. I mean, NASCAR must th people think it's the be all and end all and that they're famous. Well, they're not famous in any other circle except people who follow that. And I found that true. So in a way, I got a crazy new start because the agents and the editors and the people I was working with had never heard of Francis Schaeffer. In fact, the first time they ever heard of them is when I decided to write a memoir, Crazy for God. And that became also another book that did very well because Terry Gross on, on Fresh Air interviewed me and I was on all, all sorts of uh, television programs with it. Again, 
for them, it was all like a new world. And then to update to the present, COVID hits and it hits in the framework of Donald Trump's presidency. And at this point, everybody has heard of the white evangelical phenomena because they put Trump in the White House. Mm -hmm. And so now the world I'd helped to leave behind catches up with me. And everybody's calling me saying, try to explain Donald Trump to us. He's there because of evangelicals. Weren't you one of them one of these days? And so I had a sort of a new media presence with Rachel Maddow and all these other folks trying to explain what's going on. Okay, that's the overarching thumbnail. So let me just get for one second to the book and then we'll talk about it. Fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy came out of a totally different set of experiences that started 12 years ago when my wife Jeannie and I became the full-time caregivers for my son and his wife, Becky, who have a full-time job outside the home at that point. And rather than putting their kids in daycare or something like this, we, Jeannie and I, who live in the same neighborhood they do, become caregivers. And I so enjoyed that role. And it was such a revelation to me, this sort of second bite, this reparenting bite. I've raised my own kids. Now I'm taking care of grandkids that I started to cancel speaking engagements and all sorts of other stuff uh, made possible by the fact that at that point we're getting older and we're going on social security and we're doing all these other things. So, you know, life's at a different point, Mm -hmm. but um, we're able to, to take care of these children. And I, I began to keep a diary to Lucy, my, my little granddaughter, and tell her sort of in the future what it had been like, these seminal experiences taking care of her. And then I began to read and study and try to figure out why is it that love is a real thing, that it's not just this feeling we have, but it exists in our brain chemically and it can be investigated. One thing led to another and I found myself writing this book. And so there's two things in the book. There's, there's, there's the element of talking about my grandchildren, what I did with them. But then there's also a whole book that has a lot of science in it and a lot of research about two things, a social phenomena which puts career ahead of parenting, career ahead of connection, career ahead of love, career ahead of everything. And, I've, and, and the book is really a book about why if we build lives around the idea of success related to career, we are lost in every sense of the word. It's not an anti-career book, But if that's your priority, you are screwed for good because you will never be satisfied with whatever career money and prestige gives you. And then the second point is looking at why it is that love and connection and relationships is the driving force that anything good in life comes out of and everything else is a footnote. And the more I looked into it and the more friends I had who teach at university level and other places who read the book and gave me more things to read and ways to check out the information I was presenting, it occurred to me that this whole idea of the evolutionary survival of the fittest is really wrong. And a lot of the science has gone in a different direction. And now it's called the survival of the friendliest. And by that, they mean that none of us, say you today, Ben, or me sitting here, would be here talking unless we had come out of a species where no matter how much killing they do and wicked things, most of the time they are caregivers. They take care of each other. Empathy really does exist. Altruism really does exist. You and me are only talking today because our our ancestors somewhere back there, you know, somebody did not eat us for lunch. Instead, they fed us and took care of us. Somebody shared food with us so that when you get away from caregiving as your primary role and you get away from connection to other people as as your primary calling, you are going to be unhappy and lonely, not because this is a moral statement about what you should be doing, but this is simply the way things are. This is how we evolve. 
So if we take away love, if we take away connection, if we take away community, if we take away caring, if we take away all these things, we're left with very little that actually nurtures us as humans. And therefore, as I talk about in the book, fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy. If you want to be happy, you have to live in tune with who you are, whether that's not running your head into a brick wall and splitting your forehead open, or whether that's not crashing all your relationships so now you're alone, or whether that is not waiting until you are 47 to try to have a child because you put so much emphasis on career, and now you've got to get in vitreo fertilization and spend $180,000, and it probably still won't work. You know, at a certain point, biology is real, nature is real, um, evolution is real, morality and all these other things, not so much. Those we added later, religion we added later, but who we really are actually is a certain thing. And the, the overall driving thing, and then I'm going to be quiet, you can go to your questions. The overall driving thing is really simple, and that is connection to other humans, the giving and the receiving of care, the giving and receiving of love. If we design our lives to minimize that, we're screwed. If we design our lives to make a priority out of connecting with others, we have a shot at happiness. End of story. Yeah, and I, I so resonate with that because um, I, the, the main, I, I, I write, I, I have a couple of books, but the, my main job is I, I do IT support for a school district. And, um, you know, work, working for a school district is, is such a, a blessing because, you know, you get the holidays off, you know, you have like, you're basically off whenever your, your kid is out of school. And, yeah. And, um, and it's like, you know, I, I could, um, actually my, my first IT position was with, uh, like this big time corporate engineering company. And it was just, I was so miserable there. Like, and it's just, yeah. at some point, like there's just, there's just not enough money in the world to, to make you give up certain things in your life. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, we saw each other in New York and I was talking about my book and I think I, you walked away with a copy, didn't you? I gave yeah. you one. Mm -hmm. Good. So now don't forget to pre-order one for yourself. Even if you don't have 16 bucks, you know, borrow the money because if nobody pre-orders the book, I'm sunk. I need, I need folks out there to put it on the map on Amazon because believe it or not, in this stupid world of ours, even little bookstores that hate Amazon don't stock books unless they have good numbers on Amazon. It's ridiculous, yeah. but there we are. That's the world we live in. I'm sorry, but there, <laughs> there you go. Yep. And I, I did pre-order. Um, so this, this isn't super pivotal to your, to your book, but it but somewhat because just talking about like family values and, you know, I, I come from an evangelical background, background myself. It's just yeah. interesting to note and, and, you know, you've been able to speak on this because you were there that the stuff that, you know, the right wing evangelicals would call family values that they would fight for. And, right. you know, which is mostly about abortion and anti-gay stuff like that. Um, you know, you're saying that that wasn't a, that wasn't a church thing. That was a political thing. Yeah. And it's utterly fake. I mean, I'll give you a couple of things most people don't even think about. When we went out with our anti-abortion series, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, the people we first had to fight with and try to convince to agree with us weren't, quote unquote, secular people or secular humanists or atheists or agnostics or anybody else. They were the evangelical leaders who were pro-choice at that point. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I, you know, think about that. Nobody yeah. even thinks about that now. 
Dr. Billy Graham, the biggest evangelist of all time, pro-choice, would not take a, quote, stand against abortion, said he couldn't preach the love of Christ to women and then tell them what to do with their bodies. I mean, think about that. Dr. Criswell, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, pastor of First Baptist in Dallas and chairman of Dallas Theological Seminary at the time, pro-choice. Not only that, even wrote about it, affirming Roe v. Wade. The editors of Christianity Today magazine, which at that time was the flagship conservative Christian evangelical publication, would not write on the issue, would not review the book. When we showed up with our anti-abortion film, the venues at first were empty in comparison to the full venues and huge arenas we played with the art and culture series, How Should We Then Live? So the first thing to say is that evangelical uh, Christianity in America changed and moved to the right. Mm -hmm. There had always been the racist element. There had always been the anti-integration element. There had always been that element. But there had also been a lot of people who were in an earlier age, abolitionists. There had been people in the 20s and 30s who spearheaded work against the the child employment movement and got the laws written to exclude child employment and child labor. Evangelicals were sort of split between right and left. They weren't all on the left, right. Okay, so that's a huge difference. Well, sadly, my family and I, through, through our movie series, Whatever Happened to the Human Race in the book, And another book my dad wrote called A Christian Manifesto helped move the movement far to the right and in a way paved the way for Donald Trump. But the family's values, quote unquote, we were selling were fake. It was misogyny. It was anti-woman, anti-feminist misogyny. And you can see that's still the case today. So Texas has this law where you can rat out women or people who help them to get an abortion. Mm -hmm. Did they do any legislation to help mothers with medical expenses? No. Did they do anything to improve daycare? No. Did they do anything to guarantee women employment who leave the job and come back to it and get their pay taken away or lose their position? No. Did they increase any social security benefit style for stay-at-home moms where once they retire from other work, they get paid for those years they were with their children? No. Did they do anything about medical care for either pregnant women and or babies? No. Did they change the stigma that is attached to single parenthood so girls can finish high school, go to college with full support, nurseries at college level so pregnant women can have babies and stay in school? No, they're not pro-life. They are just anti-woman. End of story, period, paragraph, it's misogyny. And so we sold fake family values. And one of the things I'm doing in Fall in Love, Have Children Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, the book, is to try to have real family values with an actual program that gives not just women, but men, non-binary people, anybody, real choices. So the choice isn't just have an abortion or go broke. The choice is, do you want to vote with your feet, your body, your time, your life for human connections and for legislative packages that actually help people have families? Or do you just want to tell women what to do? So That's the thing. It was fake family values. That's what we were selling, fake family values. We never sold real family values because if we had, we wouldn't have been talking about abortion. We would have been been talking about how to help people in a capitalist culture navigate this weird thing where the bottom line for us is not morals. It's not families. It's not children. It's not women. It is shareholder profits, period. That's it. 
That's the only thing America believes in, shareholder profits. End of story. The rest is all bullshit. And it's a lie. And so my book basically strips the cover back and says, look, you want to talk family values? Okay. Here's a whole book about what real family values look like. Let's just start with fall in love and have children. Fall in love, have children isn't talking only about romantic love or actually having a baby. It's fall in love and have children in the sense that we change our priorities and are now more interested in how we connect with others and how we serve them and care for them and are cared for ourselves than we are simply in shareholder profits. So my son, Francis, for instance, who's single, unattached, um, unpair bonded, pushing 50 now, has been a high school teacher for nigh on 30 years. He has thousands of children who have gone through the high school where he's taught physics and math, where he's cooked lunch for kids doing extra tutoring so that they're not hungry when he teaches them, where he's cared for people one-on-one. So parents come up to me with tears in their eyes and tell me how he turned around their kid's life. He too is a parent. And like right now, and I'm not being facetious, Ben, you're acting as my caregiver because I have a new book. You're helping me share that with people listening to this podcast. You are my caregiver. I'm caring for you because I'm on your podcast talking to you. And, and so those are the priorities for some people, but not for others. For others, it's just how can we use each other, profit from each other, and then discard the person. And um, that's the ethic of our culture. So my book is a statement about real family values, and it's there to encourage people who are parents. It's there to encourage people who are grandparents. It's also there to encourage the gay adoptive parent. It's there to encourage the young person who's in love and is being told, oh, finish your master's degree before you commit, because if you don't, it'll hurt your career. And I'm saying, no, 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 love first and work out the rest later. Um, And it's there for anybody who's just tired of a culture where everything is the bottom line on money and nothing is about quality of life. Um, So it's not a book only for people who want to have families in the literal sense. It's for anybody who wants to be part of the human family, the human family first, and the corporate family second. I hope that's clear. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was um, one way it was really encouraging to me is that um, we, we, we adopted our son a couple of years ago and he mm-hmm. moved in with us when he was 10. Yes. And, um, and, you know, we, we love, you know, having the opportunity to, to love him and raise him. And, um, but, you know, when, when things are idealized so often, sometimes it's like, well, are, are we are we less of a parent because you know he's not ours biologically and sure and um what one thing you you talked about um hopefully i'm saying it right is is epi, epigenetics yes and just talking about how how like the, the way you love people like like actually like like genetically changes them it does and, and it's actually on, physical yeah and goes on to affect like further generations yeah, and not only that, there's been a whole study in Israel, and then that's been replicated here in the U.S. at Columbia and some other places. That's just mind blowing, and that is not only the our epigenetics real, the way we treat people actually changes their children, not just them, and is passed on even if you they don't know it because you know whether for good or bad. But the other thing that's amazing is that adoptive fathers have their saliva tasted tested for hormones and their brain scan, an adoptive father who's fully engaged with his child of any age 
has the same hormonal response after a while that can be measured as a mother with a newborn who's breastfeeding the child at that ultimate moment of bonding. So that it, it also, it's not only that adoptive parents can express this, it, there doesn't have to be any biological connection in order for love to be an actual measurable thing. <clears throat> so oxytocin bursts in our system, the hormone levels changes, different parts of our brains light up. And when they test males who are adoptive parents, now if the adoptive parent spending no time with their child never connects with them, then of course that's a different situation. Yeah. But, and, and the same by the way goes for a biological parent. If they don't connect with their child, those parts of the brain aren't lighting up either. But an adoptive father, for instance, who's putting an effort like you are into a relationship with a child is starting to get the same hormonal, measurable hormonal response. This isn't touchy feely feeling stuff. This is measurable science stuff. <clears throat> so the idea that somehow only the ideal nuclear family with biological parents is the only one where the, the, the thing is real is complete nonsense. Uh, and the measurable feelings we have for each other when we bond closely with a child uh, in a parental relationship, male or female, are equal. And that's, that's an absolute revelation. The, by the way, the researchers, when I was reading the papers, they weren't expecting this result. Mm. They, ju they just tested males as a kind of, oh, well, let's just see if there's any connection. Yeah. It blew their minds when they found out not only is there something similar, it's identical. So that <clears throat> they couldn't tell the difference finally in doing the test read. You know, so here's an adoptive gay parent, a, an adoptive single gay man with a child having the same brain hormonal responses of, of love as the actual biological mother. And it blew them off the chart. So they went back and checked it again. And now it's a 22 year old study and it's for real. And I've got all the references in my book. Love is a thing. I mean, love is not a feeling. Love is a thing. Yeah. And that's, um, I, I've been, I've been um, getting into reading a, a more, um, uh, reading about evolution from like more of a, like faith embracing science kind of perspective. And, right. and it's just so, it's so interesting because when, you know, the way I, w I was raised and I imagine you were too, is that evol evolution was this huge like enemy of the faith. And it's like, right. It doesn't attack faith. It actually illuminates it. Well, and worse than that, because evolution is the enemy of the faith, so is all science. And therefore, when you look at global warming, well, that's a lie, too. So, you know, the evangelical learns that everything out there outside of the Bible is sort of fake news, to use Donald Trump's terms. And that's one reason Trump was so popular with them, because they're already in the mindset the world's lying to us. There's a conspiracy against Christians. You know, they're teaching lies in high school. They're teaching lies in grade school you know, whether it's about gay men or evolution or climate change, you know, we just need to trust the Bible and, and forget all the science. Well, it's gotten us nowhere. Of course, it's a disaster in terms of climate, but it's also a disaster in terms of human relationships. And so evolution is actually a confirmation for people of faith if they will allow it to be so, but they then they can't be into conspiracy theories and and, and this weird victimology is if the whole world's out to get people who are believers and everything's a lie and it's all conspiracy against believers, you know, this is simply not the case. Yeah. And it um, just uh, the way that it, you know, as I was reading about evolution and um, quantum mechanics, just just talking about how like connection is so inherent to to our existence. Exactly. There's not there's not a separation between us and. Yeah. So anyways, um, 
talk to me a little more about yourself and this the the son that you have and your relationship with him. How how are things working for you? Um, you know, there, there's definitely an ebb and flow, which I'm sure is with any sure any parent relationship. But it's it's been really. I mean, it, it's it's such an honor. I mean, it's such an honor to be a part of his life and and to you know, I I have to you know sometimes you get kind of caught in the slog of day to day stuff. Yeah, and I have to remind myself, like, like I mean, this is an amazing you know opportunity I have to 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 help form and, and shape this. Yeah, and and um and then just to get to um get to watch him develop and get to watch yes. him you know grow and and um and and just to see like our our relationship change. Yes, because um, when when he first moved in, there was um, he was definitely closer to my wife. Yeah. Um, there was, uh, um, b- because of some of his history, he was he was more inclined to to be closer to his mother. He was like he was very protective of her. Um, any even even any like kind of lighthearted squabble between me and my wife, like he would step in, like he was very protective. Yes. Um, so, so there was kind of a distance between us initially, um, and and I actually I actually started therapy all almost the day that we took him in because I, I was like I I, I gotta deal I, I don't want to I don't want to pour my stuff out on him and, and right I don't, I don't want my stuff to create a barrier and um and so I mean it's been such a growing opportunity for me to kind of it's not lovely yeah just to get out of my shell and well let me ask you a question because I was talking to a full-time dad caregiver actually at the same meeting you and me were at on that rooftop event in New York together. <clears throat> and he was talking about all the crap he gets from his male friends saying, well, why, you know, why are you at home with your, your, in his case, three kids. And, and he was saying to them, why not? I mean, you know, my wife earns more than I do. We want somebody who's full-time with our children. What's your problem with a man taking a few years to do this? I mean, people forget how short childhood life is you know i've given 12 years out of 70 to these three grandchildren they're the best years i've ever had period i mean no and or they're much better than when i was a father because i'm a better parent now to grandchildren i was a teen parent i was a miserable father a lot of the time i have a lot of regrets and fortunately my kids have forgiven me and we've built our relationships but i love having a second bite at the apple but you know what i'm thinking about is we have a culture that's biased against men doing childcare. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pete Buttigieg, the secretary of, of, of transportation, I think it is, you know, he and the former presidential candidate sort of getting mocked on right-wing television for taking some paternity leave. Mm-hmm. Hey, these are, this is the same right-wing television that's quote unquote pro-life and anti-abortion. And they're mocking a man for wanting to take time with a newborn child. Forget, And of course they're mocking him because he's gay too. But even more than that, it's so ridiculous because in terms of human history and evolution, men are caregivers and men suffer far more than anybody else when you cut them off from caregiving. All this macho, swaggering, toxic you know, masculinity, the people who suffer most is the men. I mean, co- the cops um, who shoot people. But the fact is four times more police officers die by their own hand than die in the line of, of, of duty. It's starting to be the same in the military. So some of the most swaggering, macho, testosterone pumped up avenues of life are the ones that lead to the fastest marital failures, the most suicide, the most depression, overdose, you know, addiction to opioids. 
these are not happy campers. The whole male American bullshit thing does not work very well for all our gun-toting friends thinking they're protecting their families with another AR-15 in the cupboard and a thousand rounds of armor-piercing ammunition. The way you stay safe is by fathers taking turns, taking care of their kids. That's how you keep kids safe, Mm -hmm. by giving them the psychological joy and the happiness of having a parental involvement from the male perspective as well as the female. And it's a no-brainer. And other cultures know this, and even our own society knew this back in the agrarian days where we were families all working on the farm together. There wasn't male work and female work. Elderly people were helping with the kids. Mom and dad were out in the field working and growing things. You know, the kids were helping out and and we've forgotten all that. So more power to you for getting involved with your, your son. And I, you know, the question I've got for you is why do you, you know, what is our problem? Why is that so unusual to hear a man like you, Ben, talking in tender terms about his involvement with his son and even going to therapy to get things straightened out so he can be a better father? I mean, this this is like a no brainer. It's the norm. It's where joy and happiness lives. You're never going to regret any of that. So what is it? What's the problem with our male brothers out there that don't get this? I I think our our society is just so twisted that it's 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 hard to survive without having without having that armor up. Yeah. And of course, but when you have that armor up, you end up killing a part of yourself. Yeah. Yeah, and the, and the numbers on loneliness in the male population are horrendous. Oh, I'm sure. And in my book, I have a whole chapter, as you know, on why the feminist movement actually is better for men than it is for women. I mean, we benefit more than anybody if we're attached to women who help and do things and if we help with the childcare and all the rest of it, get a more balanced life. You know, a relationship with a woman who's more of a feminist actually works better for people. But, you know, it's we're so dumb in this culture, we don't realize that. But the societies that do, by the way, the most egalitarian societies like Iceland and Switzerland and other places where they measure how women fare in a society that's more egalitarian and pro-woman, the men live an average of three and a half years longer than men in societies like ours that are more, you know, toxic when it comes to masculinity. So it's actually provable scientifically that that men in a who are caregivers, men who are attached to women who have a more feminist view. We live longer. I mean, if that's not a, you know, and of course you do, because if you're in conflict all the time or if you're lording it over people and sort of poncing around giving orders and, you know, it's a rotten life. Yeah. As I know, because I was raised as a Calvinist trained to do this. Oh, I'm going to be in charge of my wife and she's supposed to be, you know, a helpmate and subservient to me and silent. And, you know, this is miserable stuff. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, um, funny in a way because um i'm i'm definitely i'm i i you know i still consider myself a christian i i i try to be a part of church as much as i can although church is kind of triggering for me at times but um you know you, you and i were raised in the quote family value evangelical church setting and yet like we we had to distance ourselves from that to be to become better men and fathers <laughs> Yeah, which should tell you something about the whole system. I mean, if you've got to essentially disown the Christian view of masculinity to become a happier, more Christ-like person, (laughs) to put it in those terms, treat people around you better, what's that tell you about the theology? Yeah, well, and and just the the practicality of it is that, you know, growing up, my, my dad was a pastor and 
um, and I was a pastor myself for five years and growing up in the church, um, you just, you, you have all these people who are already exhausted, you know, just trying to survive. And then you yeah. pressure them to spend all this time doing stuff for the church. And it's when, yeah. when they should be spending time with the people that they love or, yeah, you know, like, and, and we, we, we tell them, you know, Hey, go, you know, go connect with people outside in the world, but then we exhaust them by giving them all these. Things. Well, and if you, and you and me know this to be a fact, cause we not only come from that background, but we know people who did, who's the most unhappy kid in any church. It's the pastor's kids. Cause they sees all the hypocrisy. And in addition to which this quote unquote, strong parent is spending less time with his children than anybody else in the, in, in, in the community, because they're so busy about the Lord's work. And they're also busy just being this personality and building this little empire of theirs. Uh, pastors' kids do not fare well often. Their parents are too busy doing all this other fancy stuff for Jesus. But it's a it's a horrible hypocrisy. And of course, it's ridiculous and leaves a lot of people like you and me trying to get the ringing out of our ears. Mm, yeah. One, um, one quote you had in the book that just, just kind of slapped me in the face because it's just so true is, you talked about how you um, you can't you can't change anybody else, but you can change your, yourself for them. Yeah, um, and that's such a um, you know, and you you have to be at a certain place to to realize that you know, mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're doing it from you know like this this guilt laden like well you you know like church culture you should be serving people then it's like right you're not actually offering yourself, but if if you get to a place where you you have some wholeness and then you're offering yourself freely yes. to somebody else, exactly. Um, it just I, I mean I, you know that's what I'm doing in therapy is I'm I'm getting rid of my bad habits so that I can be better to the people I love. Yeah, well, here, here, well done on for you. And guess what? It'll all come back to your benefit too. I mean, you're doing it for others, but the crazy thing is, you know, there is such a thing as altruistic selfishness. Mm-hmm. You know, literally by serving others. That is exactly what is going to make you happy in the end. And again, there's studies that bear that out. Good. Well, the book will be out November 2nd in stores and also online. And if anybody who's listening to this likes the idea of the book, you can help me by pre-ordering it from Amazon and not waiting till it's out. And then obviously telling folks, and I also want people to know that I do book clubs. I don't charge a dime. And if they get in touch with me and say, hey, there's a couple of friends of mine have ordered your book and we... We bought it, we pre-ordered it or whatever. We'd like to talk to you about it. We can set up a Zoom call and I'll do your book club Q&A for you later. So please just be in touch with me through Ben. Um, and uh, uh, it's pretty simple to do. It's just frankashafer at AOL.com, my name with a middle initial A. And you can get in touch with me or through Ben. And Ben, if you want to, when you put this up anywhere, maybe post a link to my book. Absolutely. So for, for anybody who you know, it's totally resonating with what you're talking about and just the, the work life and, and balance and the, just the sickness of our society. What, yeah. you know, but they're thinking, well, what, what do I actually do about it? Like what, what would your advice be? Well, the first thing is look at your own life and, and I'm not talking for some big ra- radical born again moment or change, but mm-hmm. I mean, on the political front, vote for people who really mean it when they talk about child support and caring for families not for a bunch of hypocrites that beat people over the head with new rules and regulations on what they can and can't do, but instead say, look, you know, we're really going to support families. We're going to support children and we're going to write legislation and spend tax dollars accordingly. And when it comes to personal life, 
you know, are you going to be looking back with regret at the fact that you emphasize career, money, education, all these other things, prestige, power, over and above the quality of human relationships? Be honest. I mean, we can't do everything. So it's always a question of priorities and it's never perfect. We cannot suddenly get there overnight and make everything the way it should be. But we can we can shift our focus enough so that, for instance, you get a job offer from the other side of the country. You know, Americans move 11 times in their lives just for jobs and money. And then they wonder why they're lonely and have nobody around to support them when trouble hits yeah. or nobody around to help care for kids. <laughs> We're all, you know, we, we all scatter. We become islands. Think about that. Maybe, maybe it's time to earn less and live more. Maybe it's time to not move again for a job, but stick nearby. Maybe it's time with that person you're in love with to actually make a commitment and pair bond and be together and become best friends. Um, whether you're gay or straight or non-binary, you know, put other people ahead of commercial interests. You've got to earn a living. You need a career. You need a job. But do you really need to hold off having that child because you haven't finished your PhD yet and you're advisor is, is telling you that, you know, if you're going to be serious in the field of physics and have a baby as a, as a man and stay home with that child for a couple of years, you're making a mistake or have a baby quote unquote, too soon as a woman, you're going to hurt your career, demand something better, kick and scream. Let's have a revolution here. Gay people did it in the seventies. They said, we have a right to love. Well, how about straight people and non-binary people and gay people today till still doing it all again and saying, look, we have a right to love. You know, I don't, I don't want to wait till I'm 40 years old to try to have a child and have to use $180,000 worth of IVF and, and have lots of miscarriages. I'm fertile right now. I'm in love. I have somebody that I'm pair bonded with to hell with your program. I'm quitting college for a year and having a baby and we're going to work it out. Um, and then I'm going to come back and pick up my education. In other words, in any venue of life, you know, or grandparents, don't move to Florida, stay nearby, shovel snow, be close there for your grandchildren. Right. You know, in other words, let's let's all vote with our bodies and our choices and our spending to do more connection and less commerce. Yeah. And all of us, we have to work that in different ways. It's different for a teacher. It's different for a single person. It's different for a non-binary person. But if you if your idea of success is how much you're making in your job title, you're going to make a whole different set of decisions about everything than if your idea is, you know, and, and you're going to be a good consumer and all this stuff. But if your idea is, look, I'm going to do everything in my life possible to enhance the closest connections with people mm -hmm. so that the bottom line for me is not what I'm earning or my job title. The bottom line for me is what I see written in the face of the people who know me best and trust me. And do I see love and, and do, I see, do I see happiness there? You know, what do I see when I look in the mirror? How much stress am I under? And you know what? After COVID, I had to rewrite my book because COVID actually sort of created a social experiment saying, well, what would happen if everybody had to stay home for a while? Well, guess what? A lot of them liked it. And now they're quitting their jobs or looking for new jobs. And now they're saying they're not going to stay with the employer unless they can work from home at least a few days a week. And they're recalibrating in favor of exactly what I'm saying. So I'm not the only one out there who feels these things or everybody would have gone right back to that low paying job or the job that kept them away from their families with no thinking about it. In fact, actually, every time you read anything online these days or see something, it's people talking about how they're rethinking what quote unquote normal is. 
and they want to do something different. So I'm not the only person thinking about this. I think it's a tidal wave coming of change. And I, I'm hoping that fall in love, have children stay put, say the planet be happy can be kind of a blueprint on the new normal. That's what I'm hoping. And I would like people who are listening to help me make that a project. Let's make it the blueprint for a better, better way to see life. Yeah, that's, that's great, Frank. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. And it's been uh, awesome to meet you and, and to get to talk to you more now. Well, Ben, good for you to pursue this being a father and doing therapy to help yourself get through things and, you know, be that father, be, be that partner. You know, you're making all the right moves there. So well done on you. And um, if people want to get in touch, of course they can. And I'll be glad to answer emails or do a book club for you, whatever. And again, please just help me out. Speaking of caregiving, I need your help in, um, in getting this book out and making it a project in a, in a, in a world that otherwise isn't going to hear about it. Mm -hmm. Yep, sounds good. Really, really good stuff from Frank. So much truth um, in what he's saying. And um, I, I would say most of us know what he's talking about, um, but it's very easy to forget or get directed away from it by our culture and, and what we are often taught is important. Um, please pre-order your copy soon of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. There's so many good things in there to guide us through these challenging times that we're in. And check out my novel, Becoming Home. I hope it will inspire you to find some healing in your life. Blessings on your journey.